You are listening to WTUZ Radio Podcast. Okay, welcome to WTUZ Radio. I am your host, Rhonda. And actually, this is an update from the um, podcast I did on Friday regarding uh, the gateway economy, a gateway to a new economy. So um, in that particular podcast, I talked about how uh, the U.S., dollar or currency is done. It has no intrinsic value. Uh, And I gave all of the reasons why that is so. And I also talked about that the economy itself will crash. Um, Housing will crash. I gave the specific reasons on why housing would crash. And I talked about inflation. I talked about hyperinflation. Okay. And I said one of the reasons housing will crash is because the feds will have to raise interest rates because of the cheap free money they were given out. Okay. And As a result of that, uh, prices are going to go through the roof and hence a stock market crash as well as a housing crash, all right? And I said specifically, I watch the interest rates, okay? So with all of that said, Treasury Secretary Powell um, not Treasury Secretary, I, I, please forgive me, Fed Reserve Chairman, my bad, Powell, was on 60 Minutes yesterday. What did he say? He is going to have to raise interest rates. So, um, you know, you could go to that 60-minute interview and you're going to hear him say that they use interest rates as a tool and he's going to raise them. But, of course, he's going to spin it, giving all of the good points on why the economy is going to grow. Uh, I think he said uh, 3 to 6%, which none of that's going to happen. I'm telling you all that inflation and hyperinflation is on its way. Uh, there will be a stock market crash with big corrections. Uh, because a lot of those assets are way overvalued as well. So if you've ever been looking to get in the market, um, that's going to be the time to get in when the stuff crash. So you can pick up the, you know, the Amazons and the Teslas uh, on at a discount, probably 30 to 40% discount. Okay, let me stay focused. So stop, stock market will crash as well as the um, housing market. And I explained those reasons why, because a lot of folks have them adjustable mortgage rates. And then, so meaning when the Fed raises interest rates, they can no longer afford their mortgage. That's one uh, criteria. And the reason folks get that particular risky mortgage is because they're trying to buy more house. Because when you get an adjustable 
mortgage interest rate versus a fixed, your adjustable rate will be lower. So the lower the rate, the less interest you have to pay back. And so that's more house, quote, quote, that you can buy. So typically, that is why people get an adjustable rate, either that to get more house and or to get more house and to save money, okay? But the moral of that story is you have to be able to cover the cost if your mortgage rate goes up the next year. And depending on how your loan is structured, some may go up any um, up or down, up or down, I apologize, up and down. Uh, some may be no more than one percentage rate. Others may be um, more than two rate, two percent. So that all depends. Okay. So that's what's going on with the housing market. Uh, Not to mention the other tsunami that is in play is that all of these moratoriums that's going on, meaning they're delaying foreclosures, uh, delaying putting people evictions out of the, the homes. Well, the bank, they're just delaying those payments. That still doesn't mean that the landlord or the mortgage holder doesn't have to make those payments. Just like it doesn't mean that the uh, person paying rent doesn't still owe that back rent, okay? So if you didn't have the money to pay your back rent, how are you going to pay a lump sum when the moratorium is over? If you didn't have the money to pay your mortgage, How are you going to have lump sums or even if they put that money that you owe on the back of the loan, depending on your financial situation, can you afford that additional back of the loan blended in with your current mortgage payment, which is going to be higher? And you're going to really be in bad shape if you have an adjustable interest rate And that goes up. So that's making your payment even higher. So that's where the tsunami with the housing market is definitely going to collapse. Okay. So Jerome Powell, dude that's head of the Federal Reserve. Remember, the Federal Reserve is responsible for printing money. Okay. They're responsible for printing the money and help regulating the flow of that money for, quote, quote, and I'm doing this in air quotes, a healthy economy. But if you look at the last recessions, hmm, like since forever, since they've been in existence, they do a pretty horrible job in monitoring the flow of currency. As a matter of fact, they are the direct cause of recessions because of their policies, okay? So this is Jerome Powell, and just keep in mind uh, all that we just discussed and then the previous video. So Scott Pelley, that's the little 60 Minutes man, is the economy still in jeopardy? Jerome Powell, well, I would say this. So I'm going to add a little dramatic effect to that. 
Well, I'll say this. So the economy slowed quite a bit over the winter due to the spike in C cases. You know, you all know I have to code it. Okay, so you should know what he means, the pandemic cases. But what we're seeing now is really an economy that seems to be at an inflection point. And that's because of widespread vaccination and strong fiscal support, strong monetary policy support, okay? So I put put an emphasis on inflection point because he's kind of talking with the forked tongue there, all right? Because he says inflection point, but then he follows it up by, oh, but everything's good. Is it really now, Powell? We feel like we're at a place where the economy is about to start growing much more quickly and job creation coming in much more quickly. So there's that's really where we are. Really, though, your question goes to risk. Yeah, uh, player, he's talking about risk. And all I've heard so far, you've given a rosy picture, but see, I know the story. And there are still certainly risks, as there always are. So I did leave one thing out that I forgot to say that I found out. Um... And this was uh, based on another uh, YouTuber. Um, Back in February of this year, the Fed reserves went from printing the health of the currency M1 from once a week to one once a month. So meaning every week, They would give the health of M1 currency. And then in Feb 2021, they decided, oh, we're just going to do it once a month. So what is M1 currency? M1 currency is money supply includes coins and currency in circulation. The coins and bills that circulate in an economy that are not held by the U.S. Treasury at the Federal Reserve Bank or in bank vaults. Closely related to currencies are checkable deposits, also known as demand deposits. These are the amounts held in checking accounts. They are called demand deposits or checkable deposits because the banking institution must give the deposit holder his money on demand when a check is written or a debit card is used. These items together, currency and checking accounts in banks, make up the uh, definition of money known as M1, which is measured daily by the Federal Reserve Systems. Travelers' checks are also included in M1, but have decreased in over the recent past. Yeah, travelers' checks probably decreased because people really don't use travelers' check like that anymore. Back in the day... Um, if you were traveling overseas, you would have <clears throat> traveler's checks. Okay, um, so basically with all of that in a, a nutshell, it is monitoring the money supply. So why would they go from showing how the 
money supply is, and they're monitoring it very, very closely because they're looking at all of the physical coins, all of the uh, the bills, and they're looking at uh, the deposits. So think about this, all of the bank deposits, okay? So meaning how the money flows through the system that's what this particular report is. So why is that important that they went from giving that once a week report out to the world versus down to a month? Because remember, it was um, one week. So they monitor this daily, which makes sense. And then um, they tell the results or the health to the world every week, but now they went to one month. And the reason that they are scaling, they scaled this that back and why that is so alarming is because they don't want you to know how bad the currency circulation problem is and would give a clear indication on why, no doubt about it, they have no other... Um, choice but to raise interest rates. Because remember, all of this is caused by that cheap money, meaning feds having interest rates lowered. And so businesses and people, hence everybody and their mother running out to go get a home, buy a house, saying now's the best time to buy because money is cheap. When you hear that, that's why. And money is cheap because the Fed is behind the scenes printing currency. And the more currency you print, the less it is worth. Hence is the reason why the dollar is in negative territory. So meaning it has no intrinsic value whatsoever. Okay, so just to give you um, kind of a definition of they didn't stop printing this little um, M1 report, giving out the health of the money. So now here's Jerome Powell on uh, 60 Minutes this coming uh, Sunday, because 60 Minutes comes on Sunday. So yesterday. All right. Jerome further says, well, I say that we are not, oh, the interviewing uh, interviewer asked him, um, but we have the vaccine and you seem to be saying not about pandemic, but about the economy that we're out of the woods. So here goes Powell. Well, I say that we are, we and a lot of private sector forecasters are strong are seeing strong growth and strong job creation starting right now so really the outlook has brightened substantially and that's the base case i would say again though there really are risks out there okay so i know that may not seem like a lot you're probably like Rhonda you're making too much of that no, I'm not. No, I'm not. You just have to know how to read the code. So the public side, to tell the public, the 
This is the statement for them. This is their statement. See strong growth and strong job creation starting right now. So really the outlook has brightened substantially. And that's the base case. That's for the 99%. So no, keep on spending. Go head on out and buy that house, buy that car. You cool, you good. You know you got an interest rate. Do you boo? That's for the 99%. Here's for the 1%. I would say again, though, there are there really are risks out there. Okay? All right, so let's get into uh, what surface-level risk he's going to give. And that's also going to tell you, it's also going to tell you what they're going to use as the excuse, the justification for the crash. Now, I done already told you what they were going to use. But he's warning you. This is issued as a warning. Okay? It's two things when the Fed Reserve speaks. They're really giving the true direction of where they're going to those 1% that can read behind what he's saying, although... Not the 1% that no dude personally or they people no dude personally so they know what the hell is going on or that's in the boardrooms. I'm talking about the other 1%. Okay? That's giving them the indication, all right, this is what's really going on. Okay? So it's an it's informative and then sometimes within that informing our warnings, okay? And in this case, it's both, all right? So this is him explaining the risk. Remember, this is Jerome Powell, the Fed Reserve man, explaining the little risk. And the principal one just is that we will reopen too quickly. We will reopen too quickly. My spidey senses see it. They was keying us up. They keying us up for something. People will too quickly return to their old practices and we will see another spike in cases. Get ready. I've, I've been saying it these last couple of weeks. I know I'm already seeing it with me where, where I'm at. I'm already seeing it. Them talking about the spikes. I think with vaccinations, it should have the kind of effect that the other spikes have had, and the economy should move ahead, but it can move ahead more quickly to the extent we keep the spread of pandemic under control. All right, so... To the 99%, oh, no, everything's cool. Businesses, hey, they starting back to hire. We good. Keep on going and do your thing. Keep on going out there. Spin, 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 spin. But now, I got to tell you, I told you they talk with a forked tongue. I got to tell you, there are some risks now. There's some risks. And that though that one of the big risks is the C19 
the, if the cases go back up, then, hey, stuff is going to go back to a standstill. Hmm. Now, the real risk behind what he just told us about the pandemic, the real risk behind that is hyperinflation. How did you get to hyperinflation? Because you printed all that doggone money. The dollar is worth no value. You might as well set it in the middle of the floor and put it on fire. And when you hear the term, a dollar is worth nothing, let's be clear. We're going to keep this real basics. Because I know when I was first learning this stuff, back up in the day, and the them teachers didn't explain it properly, it really burnt me all the way up. So, if I have, let's say, um, okay, let's say an apple cost five cents, and you could take that dollar And you could buy quite a few apples, right? You could buy a lot of apples with that dollar at a 5% price. Gradual inflation is the apple goes to 6 cents. The apple goes to 7. The apple goes to 8. Hyperinflation is the apple goes to 50 cents. You still got this dollar. Well, dang, I can only buy two apples when I used to be able to buy X amount. And then extreme hyperinflation is that one apple now is a dollar and five cents. So that means I have to take this dollar plus go get five pennies to pay for this one apple, okay? So that's hence where you get the term hyperinflation where the dollar isn't worth anymore because it takes more dollars to get the same set of goods, okay? The apple ain't changed. The apple is still an apple, all right? So that's really the reason why the economy is going to crash. But Jerome Powell, the Fed Reserve dude, he told you the pandemic demi, okay? I'm telling you that's the public story. But they are already putting it out there. So when stuff do hit the fan from an economic standpoint, And it's going to be big this time because it's going to be worse than 2008. And y'all remember how big 2008 is, was rather. This is worse than that. Okay? So if something's going to be worse than something that was already bad, you would have to have really extreme circumstances in order to justify how did you let this something really, really bad happen again? Hey, it was really out of our control. It was nature. 
How was we supposed to know? You get where I'm going? You understand the underliningness of what I'm telling you? All right. So the 60 Minutes man says, it seems like everywhere I go now, I see a closed storefront next to a business with a help wanted sign. Can you explain this recovery to me? Well, now go ahead on, Scott P. Go on, boo, do, do, do your tough questioning. That was a decent comeback question. We respect that. Because how you going to tell me things are okay when California and L.A., they literally, you could just look at Venice Beach. Let's just use Venice Beach as an example. Look at all of those storefronts that had to close. Look at how rapidly the homeless population, because they already had a bad homeless population. Look how bad it is now, where it has spilled over into the parks, over into Venice Beach. Um, They recently, MacArthur Park, that's the park, because that's a a famous park there, and uh, Donna Summers from the 70s. Did a little song on it. I actually never been there, not that I remember. But anyhow, stay focused, Rhonda. That particular park, the homeless was filled in it. And they had to just go clear them out last week and literally just shut the park down. Now they're about to work on Venice Beach. Okay? So this is an excellent question from the 60 Minutes man. All right, so here go what um, JP says and responds. Yes, it is very. It is a very unusual recovery. There are really uh, desperate outcomes within countries and between countries. And so in our country, what you're seeing is some parts of the economy are doing very well, have fully recovered, have even more than fully recovered in some cases, and some parts haven't recovered very much at all yet. And those tend to be the ones that involve direct contact with the public. All right. So y'all didn't know me. When you see me live on the air, I sips my water. All right. So very first video that I did or podcast that I did talking about the gateway to a new economy And I also talked in that video about the ushering in of AI. And I also gave you the industry that would be impacted. Okay? Now, let me back up. And some parts haven't recovered very much at all yet. And those tend to be the ones that involve direct contact with the public. Those are some of the main, they were some of the first industries that I mentioned that will be hit big time. Huh, let's, now this is coming from the Fed. I just told y'all this Friday, and I added a few more industries on here. But the ones he's about to give you are obviously, they're, they're very obvious is what I'm trying to say. He's giving you the short list. I gave you the complete list because what I told you is with this particular economic crash is going to be the rise of a digital currency leaving a part of the paper dollars 
to a digital currency, and it's also going to be ushering in robotics, machine learning, and AI. So replacing current service jobs and other jobs, which is going to be in the millions with those technologies, the AI, the robotics, the machine learning. I told you in the millions of jobs will be lost, And that's where the universal basic income is coming into play. Here's the industries that Powell said. Now, again, this is just a short list. Travel, entertainment, restaurants, things like that. So you do see real disparities between different parts of the economy. It's sort of unusual for an economy like ours, okay? So once again, those of you that are in, if you don't want to even believe my complete list that I gave you, he's already telling you right now during this quote, quote, alleged recovery, which is struggling. And I'm telling you, they're going to be absolute. All right, so the 60 Minutes said, man says, Scott says, I met a woman recently, uh, blah, 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 who was working full-time but still living in a tent. And then the pandemic came along and she lost her restaurant job. When does she and everyone else like her get their jobs back? All right, here come JP. You know, there are something like 8.5 million to 9 million people, maybe even more than that, depending on how you count it, who were working in February of last year before the pandemic and have lost their jobs. So there are a lot of people out there who need to get back to work, and it's going to take some time. The good news is that we're starting to make progress now. The numbers show that people are returning to restaurants now. So the woman that you will meet find that restaurants are going to be hiring again. Oh, okay. But you just said up here that, you know, restaurants and them are recovering slowly, slowly. So when is she going to be able to get back to work? New restaurants will will start to replace some of the ones that went out of business. Okay, so that's his answer to the bunch of restaurants that closed down during the pandemic. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Okay, that's his new and that's his answer. And I'm like, okay, if you say so. But I think we need to keep in mind. We're not going to forget those people who were left on the beach really without jobs as this expansion continues. That's your UBI, your universal basic income. They're not going to have a choice. I am telling you, they're not going to have a choice but to do it. We're going to continue to support the economy until recovery is really complete. Right, so here go to 60 Minutes, uh, man. Scott, the Federal Reserve will continue its support of the economy until those people, lower-income Americans, are finding jobs again? That's the question Blood is putting to him. 
Here go JP. <laughs> um, JP says, yes, I mean, it's an interesting, really different from a lot of other recoveries. The unemployment rate among people in the bottom 20%, let's say quartile of the income is still 20% in the range of 20% unemployment for those people. <sighs> so he used all of that to basically say that the lower income Americans, the num the percentage of the number of them unemployed is 20%. That's high. But I bet you if you go do a quick Google search on what's the unemployment number, they ain't, they ain't finna give you no 20%. Now remember who's saying this now. This is the Federal Reserve Chairman. Those are the people who lost uh, their jobs. They were working in service industries with a lot of contact with the public, relatively low paid, relatively little in the way of savings, okay? And I am telling you, their jobs are going to be replaced with robotics. All right, and you know, those are the people who are vulnerable. We should see them start going back to work much faster now, but I think we will need to stick with those people and support them as they try to get back to where they were in life, which was working. They were in jobs just a year ago, okay? So he didn't already said twice that, you know, they're going to stick with the people that can't find work. Yeah, you ain't going to have a choice to stick with the people who can't find work because it's going to be so many of them. All right, so the 60-minute man, Scott, says, and most of those people in those kind of jobs are women and minorities. Here go JP. Women and minorities way overrepresented in those groups. That's right. Here goes Scott. You have people living in tents about a block from here. Have you seen them? Baby... Now, y'all know I'm assuming this is uh, D.C., okay? This is what J.P. says. Yes, I have. Yes, I can tell you exactly where they are. I see them coming to and from work regularly. They've been there in good times and bad times. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we've got to keep in mind that even though parts of the economy are back to where they were, there are still, you know, more than 20 people, SIC, who are going to the food banks or other sources of free food. Uh-huh, yeah, we know, JP. Absolutely we know, because wasn't the food banks running out of food at one point? All right, let me continue what he says. As I mentioned, very high unemployment among low workers. I, I, again, I tell you, family, Pay attention. This is the third time he is telling you. He is admitting to who has the highest unemployment rate, the lower middle class at 20%. And I am telling you, 
That's the group that's going, they're going to start, not they're going to, that has already started where the jobs are going to be replaced with this technology. And they're not going to have a choice but to roll out. And by the way, they've been testing UBI for two, three years now in different states. I think Michigan was one. Uh, not the entire state. It's one city, one or two cities in Michigan. I can't remember right now. And I know in California, um, think of Stockton. Think of Stockton, California, where they were testing UBI also, universal basic income. So meaning it's another form of welfare, family. Let's just go on and keep it real. It's another form of welfare. You receive X amount of dollars regardless. Okay, there are people who've lost their homes There are a lot of suffering. There's a lot of suffering out there still. And I think it's important that just as a country, we stay and help those people. They're going to need help. The economy that we're going back to is going to be different from the one that we had. Again, pay attention to what dude is saying. This is the Fed Reserve Chairman. He talking to the 1% because the 99%, I promise you, they're not really getting what the man is saying. Yeah, the economy is going to be different than what we had. It's going to be drastically different because you're moving from a dollar currency over into digital. And if you're looking at the currency, uh, the digital markets, it went up even more since I put out Friday's podcast. All right? And in some ways, those differences will make it challenging for those people to go back to work. And I think we owe them helping them to get, I think we owe it to them helping them get back to work. Again, I'm telling you what he's really saying. Okay? And I know folks be getting upset at the little government saying that they be lying this, that, and the third. They just talking code. They really do be putting the information out there in their little raggedy defense. In their little raggedy defense, they do be really putting the information out there. But how many people are going to look at this 60-minute interview? Number one, how many people look at 60 minutes? Then number two, if you were so happy to look at 60 minutes, because let's say one of your celebrities was on there. So you said, I'm fenced enough to watch it. If he's even on there, not the 99%, they going to walk away. They ain't even really going to be interested in what dude have to say. And let's say out of those 99%, some do watch them. It's going to totally go over their head. What they're going to get out of the article is, oh, everything's getting back on track. If they're not in that 20% that has been laid off or working that um, low-paying service job. And if it if they're in the 20% that's laid off, what they're going to hear is, dang, he is saying it's going to take us, it's going to take 
us a lot longer to get back to work, but they're going to take care of us. Hmm. So they're going to keep extending unemployment. Hmm. Or another stimulus check is coming. Hmm. Or both. Where they supposed to be doing the opposite. They're supposed to be like, wait a minute, huh? What you huh? You saying the economy will never go back to what 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 it was? It, it's gonna be different, blood different. How? What 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 you mean? When do you expect the twenty percent to go back to work? All right. Okay. All right. So um, the sixty minutes man Scott says. In this snapshot in time, what are your projections for growth and employment? All right, go on, Scott. Shout out to you. Shout out to you. You did a really good job. But I'm suspecting you had to do a really good job because this is the public's disclosure. This is the warning. So when the stuff officially crashed, people get to whining they going to say, no, nah, we told y'all it was risk. We told y'all this was going to be a different recovery because of the pandemic. They're going to tell you that they told you. Just because they don't come on and say it like I'm saying, girl, you better go into the store, get your food stock up, put you some little change to the side, be ready, because this ain't looking good, girl. They're not going <laughs> to come on and tell you in those terms. They're not going to tell you, girl, I don't care what their realtors say. You don't be going out and trying to buy no house if you cannot afford it. Don't do it, girl. Don't do it. Girl, what you need that seventy, eighty thousand? dollar car for you you gonna pay that car note that high okay you getting a couple of hundred dollars break girl they're not gonna come out and tell you that all right so scott the 60 minutes man was like look when is this employment, this alleged and supposedly employment growth going to happen, JP? JP says, let me talk about sort of broader. You don't want to look at any one forecast. So let me just say, if you look at what private sector forecasters are saying or what forecasters who sit around this table who are on the Federal Open Market Committee, our rate setting committee, what they're forecasting is growth for this year in the range of 6 or 7%, which would be the highest level in, you know, 30 years, or, or even maybe a little bit higher, and forecasting unemployment to move down substantially from 6% where it is now, maybe to between 4 and 5%. That's his official comeback. <coughs> That's the 99% answer. Okay? But he really already had told you there's risk and that the economy will never be the way it was before. 
Okay, so all of this that he just gave you now, I don't give a dog on who's sitting at the table. I don't care about this market committee. Okay, because if this same market committee that was giving these wonderful, glorious forecasters were really telling the truth, they're either really, really stupid or they're not telling the truth. Because the reason I say they must really, really be stupid to be sitting in this supposed position to be giving out a forecast on what you feel the economy would be. And all you have to do is look at the deficit. And the deficit is at two. I mean, it, it at this point, you, it's indescribable how high the deficit level is. And the deficit level is that high because the Federal Reserve is allowed to keep printing money, keep printing, 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 where the value of that dollar is in negative territory. And the only thing left to do is raise them interest rates, hyperinflation, Prices going high, collapse the dollar and move to something else. Move to another currency. That's why I say they're really stupid. Now, why I know that and they don't. Yeah, of course they know it. Okay, but that's their 99% public story. So this JP still talking. As important as that, a very large number of people have left the labor force and are now are, are not counted as unemployed. We need to see those people coming back into the labor force, and we want to see those numbers, labor force participation moving back up. We see all those things beginning to happen much more quickly, starting right about now as, as the vaccination kicks in, as people start to go back to their lives, and as fiscal support that Congress has provided consistently since last year continues to support more activity. So even when they're giving you a 99% story, they speak in a forked tongue and they turn around and tell you the truth. Because he told you the committee and them said everything finna be good, blood, player, we good. That's what the committee said. We gonna grow 6% in the economy and we're gonna bring the unemployment down to 4 and 5%. And in the next doggone paragraph, he said, but you know, Congress, they, they're gonna keep providing support. So meaning keep providing money. And where does Congress get that money, them stimmies, them ex extended unemployment? Where do they get that? They get it by going to the Federal Reserve to print more money, borrow money that they have to pay back to the Federal Reserve at an interest rate. And at the rate of that it's, at now, with the U.S. deficit or debt ratio, it cannot, it will not, it is impossible to pay back. 
That's over multiple generations of lifetime. It is impossible. It can't be paid. So they're going to crash the economy and stand it up on digital. Okay? And those that were kicking it, enjoying that free money, the private population, they're going to lose their shirt just like they did in 2008. All right, let's go back to the 60 Minutes man. He said, it seems like you're not expecting a recovery. You're expecting a boom. Okay, so 60 Minutes man, Scott, I don't know why you all of a sudden, that was an acceptable answer to you, but okay. So JP says, well, I would say that this growth that we're expecting in the second half of this year is going to be very strong. And job creation, I would expect to be very strong. We had just about a million jobs created last month. If you include revisions upward for January and February, and I would think we would like to see a string of months like that and make quick progress back to maximum employment. This is certainly in the range of possibility. As I always have to point out, there are risks to that forecast. That's for the 1%. (laughs) But I think that's the base case forecast that we have. And by the way, many others have as well. Okay, so JP, he he putting it out there. He's saying, now look now, the committee done took and told me with all their analyzation, this, that, and the other, that we're going to have a strong recovery. But, uh, uh, but, uh, uh, that's just if we still got risk, man. Still risk to this. Okay, so here go the 60 minutes, man. Scott. So when does the Fed start tapping the brakes? See, I told y'all on Friday what I pay attention to. So when does the Fed start tapping the brake in terms of raising interest rates and trying to cool things off? Baby, Mm. let me see what JP say. So what we've said is that we consider raising rates when the labor market recovery is essentially complete and we're back to maximum employment and inflation is back to our 2% goal and is on track to move above 2% for some time. It'll be a while until we get to that place. But that's the guidance that we've offered to the public of the conditions we want to see before we start raising interest rates. Okay, so the 99% story is, um, no, we're not, no, we're not really, we got a while before we raise interest rates, okay? Because we want to make sure that the economy is stable. That's pretty much what he's saying, for the 99% answer to that question. Here's what us 1% here. Oh, so you 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 going to raise interest rates then basically. That's that the no 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 player. You're going to raise interest rates. Boom. 2008 but this time it will be worse. Because the bubble is bigger. 
the price inflation on the homes alone are just, oh my goodness. Boom. When they raise them rates, it's a wrap. Okay. Remember what I'm telling you. Okay. So he's already signaling to those that know they are going to raise interest rates. So the 60 Minutes man says, what the Fed has done traditionally is use economic models to predict inflation and then raise interest rate, tap the brakes, if you will, before inflation happens. Is that what you're planning on doing? Mm-hmm. JP said, no, it's not. <laughs> and really what we've done is we've updated our understanding of the economy and therefore our policy framework to the way the economy has evolved. The economy has changed. And what we saw in the last couple of cycles is that inflation never really moved up as unemployment went down. Inflation didn't go up. It didn't. Hmm. Family real quick check on inflation are the price of your foods, your everyday goods. I don't know about you, but when I go to the grocery store, the prices are a lot higher. And they've gotten slick with it that they started about maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I call it sneak inflation, food inflation prices, where they shrink the ounces on the packages, but it's the same cost. So really you're getting less, okay? Or you're getting less product and you're paying more money. That's the definition of inflation. So let's see what else JP is saying. <clears throat> we had 3.5% unemployment, which is a 50-year low for much of the last two years before the pandemic. And inflation didn't really react much. That's not the economy we had 30 years ago. That's the economy we have now. Okay, but you just said that the lower middle class unemployment is at 20%. So I already know what the real thing is in inflation. Yeah, we already have inflation. It's just the slow pace inflation. But we are going to go into hyperinflation. Okay, so this is JP Steele. That means that we can afford to wait to see actual inflation. Now y'all hear him? We can afford to wait to see actual inflation appear before we raise interest rates. Boom. Remember what I'm telling you? When they raise them interest rates, boom, it's over. Now, we don't want inflation to go up materially above 2% and go back to you. You know, the bad old inflation days that we had when you and I were in college back a long time ago. But at the same time, we do have the ability to wait to see real inflation. And that's what we're planning on doing. I don't know how you waiting on, on, on that blood. It's the same model. It's the same model. 
So interest rates, not interest rates, inflation is already really going up. It's just at a slow pace. So when you raise it, that's going to kick in the hyperinflation. All right. He know that. The 1% know that. Okay, here go to 60 Minutes, man, Scott. So you're going to wait for the actual inflation up to about 2%. Those of you that are in those adjustable home loans, you better start adjusting your budget to pay 2% more on the money that you borrowed on that house. This is coming from the Fed chairman, the Federal Reserve chairman that loans out the money where you can get your mortgages, where Congress and them can do their spending and sending out them stimmies. Okay, so the 60 Minutes man is saying, okay, so you're going to sit up and wait until it gets to 2%. And when it hits 2%, how patient are you going to be? Go on now, Scott. You back up on it now because you kind of followed up good with the uh, question before that too. So pay attention. They are going into great details about this inflation for a reason. Because when the Fed start raising the interest the, uh, rates, Boom. This is the warning. Here go JP. Well, what we said was we want to see inflation move up to 2%. Yeah, with them adjustable mortgage rates, you better put it in your budget to pay 2% more in interest. And we mean that on a substantial basis. We don't mean to just tap the base once, but then we also like to see it on track to move moderately above 2% for some time. Family, he's telling you that he's going to raise interest rates. He's telling you that once it's at that 2%, if all is well, we're going to rise them even more. He's telling you that they're going to raise interest rates. So how's that for the people that's been doing all this borrowing? Okay? And that's including the businesses. Don't you all understand? Those same restaurant owners that they're waiting for the lower middle class to get back to work to? Those business owners, they went out and borrowed cheap money because of the interest rates. So if he is raising the interest rates, what do you think that's doing on their loan payments? That makes it higher. So that means their expenses are higher. So now help me to understand how if I had to literally sit out an entire year as a business owner, you might as well say I set out, I was operating probably at a loss at a minimum, maybe breaking even. How am I supposed to get back on track 
if inflation is rising, so meaning the cost of the goods that I have to buy for said business is going to be higher. Oh, and guess what's also going to be higher? The payments on the money that I borrow. Now, explain to me how they have money to hire back workers and additional workers. Because remember, they're 20% of the unemployment rate. Like I said, when those interest rates rise, inflation is going to hit boom. All right, so this is still JP. And the reason for that is we want inflation to average 2% over time. Inflation has been below 2%. That's been the cheap money, y'all. That's why everybody and their mama and, and, and M going out getting loans, okay? So it's not just homeowners and people buying cars. It's also business owners. And that's small businesses and big businesses as well. Although big business can leverage it a lot more than the small mom and pop. We want it to be just moderately above 2%. So that's what we're looking for. That's the situation we're looking for. And when we get that, that's when we'll raise interest rates. Okay. I'm telling y'all. So here go uh, 60 Minutes. Scott, you raised an interesting point. Whatever happened to inflation? Mm, well, well, gone, Scott. It seems about 1981, it took a nosedive. And now we have an entire generation of Americans who've never seen rapidly increasing interest rates or prices. Boom. Very good question, Scott. 60 minutes, Scott. Very good question. I am telling you all, family, again, I know I keep reiterating this. They're doing this interview for a purpose. This is considered disclosure. This interview is totally considered disclosure about interest rates rising and meaning it's going to be hyperinflation or higher prices. JP, that's right. That's one thing that's so interesting about the economy is that it is ever-changing. You know, it's not like water that's always boils at 212 Fahrenheit. The economy that we had during the inflation years was one in which when unemployment went to a low level, inflation would move up and it would stay up. Uh-huh. That wasn't really the case, okay? Uh, back then, they were just doing it with the bond and inflationary bond market where folks was getting paid a lot on the interest rate then. But trust me, it was the same concept. All right, this is still JP. And it was very difficult to understand how to get inflation under control. And as you will remember, it was the single biggest economic problem of that era. So what he's saying, once again, in the 80s, Interest rates were higher. That's why I said, yeah, people was making their money off bonds because interest rates were high. So to make investment money back up in the 80s, you could get a bond or a CD. I think they would call them cash deposits for like eight, nine percent. Okay, so meaning you put one hundred dollars in there at. 
eight, 9% on top of that $100. Whereas nowadays, at one point, it was at a negative interest rate. So meaning you have $100 in that MF, you coming out in a negative 95, all right? At one point, it was at negative level. They were about to go negative. Then it went to zero. Now it's at one or 2%. If that, I, I know damn well, it ain't even at no 2% of what people are earning on their money in the banks and savings accounts and on uh, bonds, okay? And on top of that, in the 80s, that's why a lot of people did not own their homes. So meaning if you weren't a strong middle class or upper middle class, you didn't own a home because interest rates were, again, 8 9%, and you had to have 20% down cash minimum to buy the house. So they couldn't afford to. Okay, so I'm just trying to give you some content on what he's talking about, what had happened up in the 80s. So what happened was Paul Volcker and others came around this table and they broke the inflation psychology by raising interest rates and holding the economy back until people understood and believed that inflation would be much lower than that. And I'm going to tell you at the time, okay, you know, I was a youngin'. But I had parents that were middle class. They weren't the strong middle class. They were just teetering at that lower to middle. They lost their shirt. All right? And that was also the time that manufacturing, the break, the breakup of the um, unions, so manufacturing jobs started being lost. Okay, Alan, and that's why I t I'm telling you, it's the same difference. You have to look at the factors. That particular in the 80s, th those are the ones that were struggling. First, it was the lower middle class and the, um, yeah, the lower middle class. and The, the lower middle class and uh, the um, ones that aren't middle class. They were the ones that start suffering first until that bubble popped. And then that's when it started affecting the quote, quote, professional folks as well, the uh, middle class and upper middle class. All right. So Alan Greenspan, in a way, moved us further along. Mm -hmm. And so we've had inflationary psychology so that inflation is low and stable. Now, remember, there's still JP talking. In addition, though, the economy has changed because the globalization of the economy and technology have enabled manufacturing to take place all around the world. Huh. Did it now, really, JP? Did it really now? Just like I just said, <coughs> manufacturing was busted up. See, I don't be making this stuff up, y'all. I ain't got to lie. I ain't got to lie. I don't be making this stuff up. I just told you in the 80s that the lower middle class and the poor were the ones, or the low-income earners, were the ones that suffered the most. I also said that's when manufacturing started to be broken up. 
And he just said, because the globalization of the economy and technology have enabled manufacturing to take place around the world. It's very hard for people in wealthy countries to raise prices or to raise wages. It's hard for workers to raise wages when wages can move overseas. So it's just a different economy. And one manifestation of it, if you look around the world in other wealthy countries, they're all experiencing very low inflation and really have for the last quarter of a century. So basically, family, he pretty much told you that those jobs that went overseas are not coming back, which I've been telling y'all that for years. I also told you all that were rah-rah for Trump card. I told you those jobs aren't coming back. I've been saying that for 15 years now. So here we go, the Fed Reserve telling you they, they ain't coming back. Now I'm telling you the new equivalent to what happened in the 80s with manufacturing. What's happening today is the service jobs. So I'm telling you, that's the restaurants. I am telling you, that's the Uber drivers, all of that. That's the customer service people. I am telling you, those jobs are not coming back. They're going to roll out the robotics and that's a wrap. All right, Scott Pete. Now that's just, that industry, I had already went across a couple of other ones, insurance underwriters, it's going to be a lot of stuff. If anything that can be automated, they can write a computer program to do it, that's what it's going to be. All right, so this is the 60 Minutes Man. Man, y'all didn't expect this to take this long. <laughs> Sorry. The 60 Minutes Man. But can the United States spend trillions on pandemic relief and trillions more on infrastructure and social programs without setting a match to inflation. Hell of a job, Scott P. Hell of a job. This, I know I keep saying this, but I keep saying it so you all can hear me loud and clear. Although I am loud as hell and ain't like you can't hear me loud and clear. But you know what I'm talking about. They are giving you this interview on purpose. Scott P. is asking direct questions on purpose. This is a warning. This ain't no doggone update. This is a warning to hyperinflation and the crash of an economy. This is what JP says. So in other words, before I just, in case I distracted you, what uh, Scott P.'s question was, he said, so you trying to tell me that the U.S. can spend trillions on the pandemic relief. I told y'all about them stimmies. That stuff comes at a cost. And trillions more on infrastructure and other programs without hyperinflation. This is uh, JP. So let me first say that we're not responsible for fiscal pop, baby. I, honey, 
Child, I can't. I can't. That's like when you get to the crust of an argument with somebody, you got them right where you want them. It's either a yes or a no. Watch how player peep game. Watch how player finna play this. JP. So let me first say that we're not responsible for fiscal policy. And we're reluctant to offer advice to Congress, which after all created us and has oversight over us. So in other words, when this uh, shit hit the fan, don't come asking me. Don't come asking me nothing. Because your folks came to me and asked for a loan. It's their responsibility. That's on them. I'm just a bookie that set the terms. I'm just a bookie that set the points. So when I want to raise these MF points, I'm going to raise these MF points. And when I want to lure you in to take more of my loans, Cause you ain't really spent like that with me in a minute. I'm going to lower them points and let you borrow as much as you want on them low points until I decide to raise them points and you going to run me my ends. You going to run me my ends on what I loaned you and you going to run me my ends on them points. That's what you going to do. So that's pretty much what he's telling blood. Blood, I don't know why you asking me that. All right, so back to um, JP. But so what we've seen is we've been through times with large fiscal deficits recently. So he basically saying blood, that's Congress and them keep borrowing this money. For example, right after the global financial crisis and inflation didn't really react to that. If you go back to 1960 and 1970, yeah, okay, just real quick, family. Yeah, um, JP, the reason inflation didn't really happen right after the uh, global crisis because just a little bit you all did move the interest rates, that's why it crashed in the first place. And why inflation didn't happen was because you wasn't ready to stand up your digital currency system. So you lowered the points or the interest rates back down to get everybody all comfortable, get them settled, get them shake off the dust and then let them go back to the track. Let Congress go back to the track to pay them points. Okay, that's why it wasn't hyperinflation after 2008. Okay, if you go back to the 1960s and 70s, then fiscal policy was a big driver of inflation and deficits were possible. There are a lot of theories on that, but you really don't, but you don't really see that now. Ultimately, can we afford to spend the money? I would say it this way. The U.S. federal budget is on an unsustainable path. Now, this JP now, this the bookie. This the bookie, y'all. 
Now, you know that's bad, baby. That is bad, that's bad, that's bad. When your pusher or your bookie have to tell you, you know you in a hole, right, that you can't get out of, right? Meaning the debt is growing faster than the economy. And that's the kind of unstable, uh, unsustainable in the long run. That doesn't mean debt is at an unsustainable, unsustainable level today. It's not. I'm telling you, he ain't telling the truth. It is unsustainable. It cannot be repaid. We can service the debt we have. Okay, so notice when he says service the debt, he's the bookie. So meaning he going to keep still making collections on that said debt. We can service the debt we're issuing. And that will remain the case for the foreseeable future. But we'll have to return to a sustainable path. The time to do that is when the economy is strong and we're fully recovered and people are working and taxes are rolling in. The time to do that is not now. Okay. Well, we're going to see because um, y'all been saying the economy was strong before the pandemic. So why didn't y'all uh, do all of this returning to a healthy debt then? So that's that's my follow-up question. That's my follow-up question. So if you wanted to wait until the economy was healthy, this, that, and the third, you had a time frame before the pandemic hit. Why didn't y'all return it to a healthy level then? Oh, was that because it really wasn't healthy? You was just issuing out free money. Well, it wasn't free. You were in- issuing out cheap money, lower points. Oh, okay then. So Scott goes, knowing what we know now, what do you think would have happened to the economy in the p- p- pandemic relief bills had never passed? JP, you know... I hate to even think. It would have been so much worse. This is a very unusual downturn in a way. Typically, there's something wrong in the economy and the economy slows down on its own. This is a very strong economy that was hit by an external force. And tens of millions of people lost their income overnight. You know, we don't have tools to deal with that. Congress, in effect, replaced people's income kept incomes, kept them in their homes, kept them solvent, kept their lives together with what they did in the CARES Act, right? Right, and remember what I told you all, that that STEMI money had to come from somewhere. It came from the Fed Reserve, the bookie. It was heroic. This is still Jerome Powell. It was heroic, and it really made the difference. What Congress did with the CARE Act really made the difference. It passed in late March within less than a month of the pandemic arriving, and it it passed unhumanously. And it was by far the largest rescue bill since World War II, so I think historically it it will be a big feature of the landscape when people look back. Okay, so... Y'all think about what was given out 
in that pandemic relief bill. Okay, the biggest um, impact that was made, according to what folks said, it was the extended and the unemployment uh, checks. It was also um, being able to allow to collect unemployment as well as get your STEMI, okay? And allowed you to basically not pay rent, okay? But the behind the scenes cost is that was all borrowed money. All of it was borrowed money and it has to be paid back, okay? So the 60 Minutes man, Scott said, would you advocate another round? JP, it's really in the hands of Congress now. So again, once again, JP telling you that's on Congress, blood. Don't ask me whether or not your people need to come and borrow more money from me. I don't make those decisions. Your people out here making those decisions. I'm just going to tell you how much, how many points I'm going to charge you on that money. All right, I think we're back to a place where the economy is recovering quickly and you know we can do our jobs and not help Congress do theirs, okay? Right, so it sounded like to the 99% he's saying that maybe no more stimulus, okay? All right, so Scott P. says the Chinese last month unveiled the world's first digital currency. Baby, let me tell you, you can say what you want to say about me but I was right on the damn money, right on the money. I just said all of this Friday, but okay, let's see what was uh, fence to happen. The Chinese last month unveiled the world's first digital currency from a major power, power currency that would not be printed, but would exist only in cyberspace on your phone, for example. Is the Fed working on a digital dollar? Mm-hmm. Well, 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 JP. So China's been working on a digital currency for seven or eight years now. Uh-huh. I had told y'all. I said since, actually, I didn't even say, I read to you what Bitcoin was, Um, it was released in what, 2008. But I told you that all of the players behind the scene had already either stood up their currency or are in the works of standing it up. So now this is JP saying that China was working on theirs for eight years. We're actually evaluating that. No, they ain't, y'all. It's already a U.S. digital dollar, okay? There's already a Fed coin. Go look it up! Already exists. Most major countries are now looking at the possibility of having a digital currency. And really asking the question in our very modern, advanced economy with a fast, efficient, full-blown payment system, would adding a digital currency, a form of digital currency, would it actually benefit the public that we serve? That's the question that we're asking. We're working very hard on that. We're also doing quite a lot of uh, technological experiment. I mean, technology has made this thing possible. And so we feel it's our obligation to understand it. How would it work? What would the features be? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I already told y'all. 
that they already have it. I told y'all back in 2008 with the crash that they were testing it all of these years. I told you. So they ain't already looked looked into it. They have um, basically been testing it. Okay, so let me go back to what he was saying on this digital currency stuff, y'all. There are many sub, uh, subtle, subtle and difficult policy choices and designs. Um, okay, and oh, I, I want to make sure I give the rest of this of what he's saying about digital currency. I mean, the technology has made this thing a possible uh, and so we feel it's our obligation to understand it, how it works, and what the features will be. And family, they already know that. This is still uh, JP. There are many sub subtle and difficult policy choices and design choices that you have to make. We're doing all that work. We have not made a decision to do this because, again, the question is, will this benefit the people that we serve? And we need to answer that question well, and we need to involve the public and Congress deeply in that process because it would be an important step if we were to do this. Okay. Um, so just a quick thing. Uh, the Fed coin is coming. This was on March 9th, 2021. This is from Money Metals, all right? Before we talk about Fed coins, uh, let's look at the old school, non-digital, non-blockchain coin, gold and silver. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to go through that. Okay. Let me see. I know because I'm holding y'all longer than I expected. Okay. Um, all right. I don't want silver. Okay. Sorry. I had to get, go through all of that. Fed coin, a central bank digital currency. The Fed coin has bipartisan support. Jay Powell appointed as the Federal Reserve chairman by Press Trump said in October that the Fed Reserve is conducting research into issuing a digital currency on its own and also in partnership with other central banks and the bank for international settlement janet yellen appointed as the fed chair uh, by press O or president obama said last week it makes sense for central banks to be looking at issuing sovereign digital currencies they give different stated reasons powell is more conservative and his focus is on addressing the potential competition threat of bitcoin and digital currencies for for from such countries as china okay hope this is starting to all blend in i'm sorry this is long but i kind of have to make it long to bring the receipts on why i keep saying what i am saying however if he really wanted to make the dollar more competitive against the um yuan then he would just abuse the feds credit less <laughs> all right so supposedly and allegedly she's taking a dig at him for um printing too much money but believe you me they're all in locks step they're all sitting at the same table it's a ruse for the public 
yelling nods to a progressive idea saying that a Fed coin could help address hurdles to a financial inclusion in the U.S. among low-income households. However, if she really wanted the unbankables, and I'm doing, they, they put it in quotation marks. I'm putting it in quotation marks. Now, just real quick, just to put you up on game, to let you know that we're definitely going to a digital currency. It's not if, it's just when. And I'm telling you, within the next two years, it, it's only logical within the next two years, going digital. The unbankable. Those of you that are familiar with the cash, uh, the the um, the applications that you can do transactions. One is called Cash Apps. Melanated folks made Cash Apps. It put Cash Apps on the map. If you have Cash Apps on your phone, you should see a place to buy Bitcoin instantly. And it's actually a brother behind that uh, in partnership with Cash App to do that. All right. The other one is Venmo. Okay. That's what Caucasians use a lot. They use Venmo. Okay. And other folks. But melanated folks are the biggest user of Cash App. So when typically when they're talking about unbankable, they're really talking about people that really don't fool with banks like that. Largely, um, people that um, were using what you call them, them cash cards. All right. That's who they're talking about with the uh, the unbankable. However, if she really wanted the unbankable to be able to open accounts, then she would just repeal anti-money laundering and other regulations that penalize a bank for crimes committed by its clients. Okay. Um, all right. So who was she talking? Was that her saying it or him? Oh, well, I guess that was somebody else saying it about her. Maybe the author. Both Powell and Yellen's, uh, Yellen's statements are disingenuous. A Fed coin is coming. Uh-huh. Yep, author. Yep. I'm sure which is sweet pea because it's necessary. Allow us to explain the two real reasons. The first is sinister. The second is more pernious. Uh, why Fed coins? Two real reasons. The first reason is the pathological fall of interest rates over the last four decades. Interest in the U.S. dollar has not gone negative yet, though it has in the Swiss franc, the euro, the pound, and the yen. Yep. Interest will continue to fall. When the rates go negative enough, the banks will not be able to hold the line on paying zero interest in deposit accounts. They will be forced to pass their paying through the depositors. This will provide the first incentive to withdraw cash from the bank, thus pulling out capital since the 1930s. So in other words, I was explaining that to you all. Negative interest rates is if you have $100 in the bank and you go to take it out and you only get 95. The paper dollar bill has zero yield. People will prefer zero to negative yield. Free is better than paying to hold your money. You better believe it. The central banks have three ways to try to fight this. One, they could try to impose losses on the dollar. 
They could create an algorithm that deducts from the face value based on the serial number. Oh, well, dang. Now, that's deep. If they roll this out to the point of sale devices, then every merchant will know the legal tender value of your cash. That 20 could actually be worth $19.93, but this seems impractical and confusing. Yeah, honey, it does, because, you know, folks going to be scrapping in the store. You pull out a cash $20 bill and something is $19.99, and they don't, honey, that ain't going to work. And they turn around and tell you, you owe them two cents. Honey, it's going to be scrapping. People going to be fighting the little cashiers. You know they can't explain that and understand that. Okay, two, they can demonetize cash. People are given until a certain date to turn in their cash for a credit to the bank account. After that, the paper will have no legal tender value. But as Yellen noted, many people are kept out of the banking system. All right, now just so you know this second part, and and what he's doing, y'all, is just giving you different scenarios that could happen. Right, but this little part that he's talking about, number two, that actually did happen in India where they woke up and they had to basically um, turn in their cash, or um, pretty much they were going to lose value. Okay, so they was basically forcing people to go in and get bank accounts because in India. You had a lot of side hustling going on. So you know what I mean? You know, the merchants out there selling their little stuff and they were selling it cash and they don't use bank accounts. Okay. So what they were probably using was cash app or something like that. And some on the uh, cryptocurrency side or just, you know, in, in conjunction with just straight up cash. So India was like, dang. I know there's more cash floating around in the system than that, okay? And I bet you they're not paying taxes on that stuff. So they work, they um, debase, that's when they call it, if I'm not mistaken, debase the currency where they change the denominational value face on the currency. So let's say you were holding a $2 bill and they say we taking $2 bills out of circulation and you got to bring them in by this date or you just ain't going to get nothing on that $2 bill. So literally they woke up overnight in India and they only had, I think, a day or two to get up in there, make them uh, get you a bank account, stand in that line and... Uh, trade in whatever currency they were taking out of circulation and they were forcing people to get bank accounts. All right. So that's what he's talking about in number two. Okay. So that would take care of the quote, quote, cash app people. And, and don't get me wrong. Cash app is connected to a bank account, blah, blah, blah. But you can get a card and not have to do that. And they're not the only ones you other, you also have other um, check cashing cards that you can get. Okay, or three, they could issue a Fed coin and force everyone to trade their paper cash for Fed coin. Fed uh, coin would be nothing like Bitcoin. So in other words, Fed coin would just be replacing the currency dollar. I told y'all it was coming. 
I told y'all the flip side to cryptocurrency is that now they can digitally track everything that you have. So no longer do you have that $100 in cash in your purse. And although there's a serial number on there, they don't know who has that serial number. You see where I'm going with that? The only time they know that that serial number is back into play is when it's cashed in, when it's circulated back to the Fed Reserve. But with the Fed coin, there is no such thing as tangible, physical holding of paper currency. It'll all be on a digital ledger. Fed coin would be programmed to erode at a rate to match the Fed's negative interest rates. Thus, it would not provide a haven to anyone seeking to hold cash to avoid the erosion of the bank balances. They uh, will have you totally trapped. This is an extension of the same idea behind banning gold in 1933. I totally agree with this author. The people were disenfranchised, unable to opt out of the government's debt. The most conservative saver was forced to hold government bonds rather than gold. Indeed, after that, the definition of risk-free assets is the government bond. So you see how they played the pimp game back then? Took away the gold and gave you a bond? And convince folks that the bond was worth more than the gold? Yeah. After 1975, you can hold gold. But now it's not a dollar balance. It has dollar price vitality. Okay, remember in part one of this, I was telling you that it used to be for every dollar that was printed, there had to be an equivalent amount of gold. But that's no longer the case. That's why, and also that stops, might I add, I apologize for what I didn't put in that first one. When the U.S. was on the gold standard, that's why you couldn't print endless money because there's not endless amount of gold. So you can only print money up until the point of how much gold that you have. And when they went off of the gold standard, that's where all of this endless printing of money comes into play. And why the dollar's value, or they're calling it price volatility, is the way it is. Hence, I'm back to the article now. Hence, it's unsuitable for many conservative savers and financial institutions. If you have a billion dollars of cash and a liability to pay a billion dollars in two months, then you can not take the risk on gold. As we write this, the price of gold has dropped $244 since the start of 2021 or about 13% in about two months. Okay, and I just so happen to believe um, they are putting the price of gold lower to balance out um, the falling price of the dollar. All right, because it's going to shoot back up because when hyperinflation happens, uh, you're going to see gold go up uh, in more value. All right, so an individual may be able to escape the system by buying gold or Bitcoin. However, the the dollars are trapped in the system. 
The seller of gold or Bitcoin is the new owner of those dollars. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. Because if I want to buy gold, I have to buy it with dollars. If I want to buy Bitcoin, I have to buy it with dollars. And faces the same awful choice of the tiger of the or the tiger. The Fed coin will be designed to further tighten the news. Even cash will come entirely electronic and subject to slow confiscation, not by inflation, but by negative interest rates that reduce account balances. So uh, very good to this um, author. I got this off of Money Metals. He put this out on March 9th. Right. So I just wanted to put it into perspective what the uh, Fed coin is really about. I'm telling you, they already have it. It's already coming. There's already a U.S. digital dollar. Like I told you all last time, I told you to go look it up. It's there. It's already there. It sits flat at one dollar. OK, Um. all right. So he's talking about this. I'm back to JP talking about. Uh, digital currency, and he's saying that they're working on it. Uh, we have not made a decision to do this because, again, the question is, will this benefit the people that we serve? And we need to answer that question well, and we need to involve the public and Congress deeply in that process because it would be an important step if we were to do this. Okay, so in other words, he's telling y'all that Congress has to make the final decision to flip it to uh, a Fed coin, which they will. They they are going to flip it to a Fed coin. And they're going to flip the uh, dollar to the U.S. digital dollar that they already have. So here go to 60 minutes, man. But given the fact that the final decision hasn't been made, you are doing, if I understand you correctly, software development, even graphic design on what a digital dollar would look like and act like. Now, you catch that question, 60 Minutes man said, okay, but if I catch you correctly, y'all already didn't finish the software development. You had already graphic designed the logo of the coin, the Fed coin. This is what JP says. Yes, we're doing lots and lots of work. We're doing stuff jointly with other central banks. We're doing things that the Boston Fed and many of the regional feds have little projects going on. So don't that mean they're working on the digital currency? Here are the board. We have a group of people who are doing different software development and that kind of thing. It is a very, very large, complex project. And you know this is really just table stakes. This is understanding the technology and the possibility so that you can really address the policy issue. Well, I'm here to tell you they already figured out the technology issue. That's what Bitcoin was all about. That's why it was issued in 2008 to set up that digital ledger, to test that digital ledger. And since the release of Bitcoin, there are whew, thousands of other digital co uh, coins that has even better technology, superior technology than uh, Bitcoin that moves a lot faster, that can uh, make it ultimately cheaper. So the technology is already there. So here go JP again. We are the world's reserve currency. 
Okay, we talked about that last time when we talked about that all international debt is settled in the dollar. And that uh, a couple of years ago, maybe about six years ago, I was telling you that as the dollar value got really low, that it was really a stink with the shipping agencies, um, meaning stuff was like sitting in the sea because the other countries that were importing to the U.S. did not want to settle in dollars because of that value that's lost with the dollar. All right. Now, uh, another one of the YouTubers uh, also said that the um, he made a point. He said that um, ship that got stuck in that port recently, he said he felt that it was planned, that it was another uh, situation to have stuff sitting at the ports because of settlement. And just note, when uh, shipping ports get stuck like that, so whether or not it's natural or whether uh, anything that's sitting at the ports, those are supplies that are supposed to be coming in for the, um, you know, whether it's food supply, but mainly manufacturing stuff. That means there's going to be a shortage in those things. Okay, so I've told you all many times before to get yourself prepared, stay prepared in that manner, especially when you have family members that are depending on um, medication. Okay, all right. So Scott P comes back again and asks him, remember, we still on this digital currency question. You think it's likely JP, I think it's possible is all I would say, okay? Because if he would have said it's like, if, if JP would have flat out come out and said, yeah, we going to it, baby, we would have woke up the next morning. Digital currency at a minimum, Bitcoin would have been up to 120000 per one coin. And all across the board, the other markets, uh, the other coins would have doubled. And... I'm just here to tell you that Bitcoin got a nice little jump and so did the other alternative coins got a nice little jump. And I see why if blood is coming out saying all of this, meaning JP. I think that this is very, very interesting, subtle, complex set of questions. You've seen many other countries like ours, well-off countries like ours, that are looking at it seriously. In some of those countries, the use of cash has declined precipitously. That is not the case here. Americans still like to use cash. So it's something that'll be decided based on the situation here in the United States. And I'm telling you what they're going to do. They're going to be pushing people to the apps. Hence why cash app was put out and became really, really popular in the melanated community Hence why now, Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin, all right? Now, Cash App isn't the only one. You have other Cash Apps as well. That's going to solve the CAD, the using cash problem right there, okay? Right? And all they're going to do is call them dollars back in, y'all. 
Okay, so here's the um, 60 Minutes man. A private hedge fund called um, Archigos collapsed last month after borrowing billions for the bank to make risky bets on stocks. Now the banks are out of billions of dollars. How concerned are you that the financial system is blundering into the same kind of opaque risky bets that led to the Great Recession in 2008? JP said, this is an event that we're monitoring very carefully and working with regulators here and around the world to understand carefully. And I would say a couple things. First, this this incident doesn't really raise questions about the stability of the financial system of or of those institutions, which are mostly foreign banks. What concerns What's concerning about it, though, is, and surprisingly, frankly, is that a single customer client, one of these large firms could result in such substantial losses to these firms in a business that is generally thought to be uh, present relatively well understood risk. So that is surprising and concerning. And, you know, we're going to understand that and get to the bottom of it. What we're trying to do is make sure that the banks understand the risk that they're running and have systems in place to manage them. This would appear to be a significant shortfall, a failure on that front. And so that's something that we're looking at. Okay, so let me just break that down to y'all just in layman terms. Let me break it down to y'all. All they're really telling you, because the 60 Minutes man saying, this looks like the 2008 stuff to me, player. Where people was taking them risky bets. What about dude that had went and was able to borrow all them billions from the banks and then couldn't pay pay it back? And so now the bank is out of billions. What's up with that? This seems 2008-ish to me. And he basically is saying, well, it's a little bit different. And yeah, the only reason it's different is because Y'all wasn't allowing, you know, average people to take out mortgages in their dog name and um, homeless people taking out mortgages in their dog name. But you were still allowing people to borrow more than they can afford with low interest rates. Okay. You still allowed um, hedge funds and businesses to borrow a lot of money. Okay, so that dude borrowed that money and was playing around in the stock market and now he can't pay back the loan. And he up to tell us something they looking into it. What you mean you looking into it? That's 2008 all over again. So here go the 60 Minutes man again. The chances of a systematic breakdown like 2008 are what today? Child, I'm surprised he got to ask the uh, Fed all these questions. This is a hell of an interview, family, and I'm glad I took the time to just read it out. All right, the chance that we will have a breakdown, this is JP, the chance that we will have a breakdown that look anything like that where you had banks making terrible loans and investment decisions and having low levels of liquidity and weak capital positions and thus needed a government bailout, the chances are that are very, 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 very low. But the world changes, the world evolves, and the risk changes well. 
And I would say that the risk that we keep our eyes on the most now is cyber risk. Chow, shut the front door. Chow, chow, chow. So he telling you, hmm, now this is what it sounds like to me. Now this just me. This is the way my mind is set up. So are, are you hinting that we're going to have a, a some type of cyber event? So I'm back to uh, JP. So you will worry about a cyber event. That's something that many, many government agencies, including the Fed and all large private businesses and all large private financial companies in particular, monitor very carefully, invest heavily in. And that's really where the risk, I would say, is now, rather than something that looked like the global financial crisis. Okay. So let me just refresh y'all memory. When this stuff crash, it's going to be the pandemic and a cyber attack. That's what I'm hearing so far in this article. I'm looking at the backstory, the 1% side of this. I am hearing the pandemic and a cyber crisis. So here go the 60 Minutes, man. Well, when you talk about cyber risk, what are you talking about? What kind of scenarios are you looking at? Here go JP. All different kinds. I mean, there are scenarios in which a large payment utility, for example, breaks down and the payment system can't work. Payments can't be completed. There are scenarios in which large financial institutions would lose the ability to track the payments that it's making and things like that. Okay, so he's telling you what the cyber risks are going to be. And what he just ex explained right there, tied to them banks and transactions, hmm, that sounds like a pretty perfect reason to go over to the digital ledger. Because that quote, quote, system cannot lose transactions. It is much harder to quote, quote, cyber attack those systems. Okay, so I'm back to the article, what JP is saying. Things like that, where you would have a part of the financial system come to a halt, or perhaps even a broad part. Sounds to me he's telling us what's going to happen. Now, it's still JP. And so we spend so much energy so much more time and energy and money guarding against these things. There are cyber attacks every day on all major institutions now, and the government is working hard on that. So are all the private sector companies. There's a lot of effort going in to deal with those threats. That's a big part of the picture in today's world, okay? So uh, Scott P. goes, how have we gotten away with not having a disaster like this Child, I cannot make this up. Baby, this is good, and I'm so glad I'm reading it word for word. Child, this JP. You know, I don't want to jinx us. I would just say we've worked very hard at it. A lot of us have worked very hard at this and invested a lot of time and money and thought and worked collaboratively with our allies and with the government agencies. But there's never a feeling at any time that you've done enough or that you feel safe. Okay, there you go. It's going to be the crash. Reasons are going to be the pandemic and a cyber attack. 
Uh, so 60 Minutes Man said, you have been watching various market indices breaking records almost every day now. Is what's happening in the stock market today, in your view, rational, or is it a speculative bubble? Child, I can't wait to hear this. Here go JP. We take a little broader lens than that, if I may. And that is, we look after broader financial stabilities, which indicate a bunch of things. How resilient is the financial system? How much capital? How much liquidity? How much risk management? Does it function in the face of significant shocks? Okay, so basically you saying to me that y'all just look to see if the economy can sustain a drop in the stock market. Oh, okay. So let's read what else he, JP says. One other piece of it, though, we do look at asset prices. And I would say some asset prices are elevated by some historical metrics. That's telling you the stock market is overvalued. There is a bubble. Now, that does not mean every asset is a bubble, but overall, you group them all together, they are overvalued, they're overpriced. And like I always tell y'all, you shouldn't be buying stuff when the price is high unless you absolutely needed it. So all of you out there dipping and dabbing in the stock market, if you don't know what the hell you doing, I suggest you either get real good, real fast, or you better pull your money out and sit your ass down on the sidelines. Because I see a lot of people going up and down my timeline bragging about the stocks that they didn't bought. And all I'm thinking to myself is, have you tracked that stock? And you won't hear bragging about all the stocks that you bought when I know that the stock market is at its highest point. I have not seen you same said person bragging on when the stocks was really low and the market had crashed. That's when you come and brag. These are the things that the 1% do. They come and scoop up the stuff at the low prices. They don't buy high. They're selling at the high price. And here's JP telling you that these assets are overvalued. Of course, there are people who think that the start market is not overvalued or it wouldn't be at this level. Okay, and he's right. That's why it keeps going higher. Because these supposed experts and gurus get on the television and say all is well. They only talk about the record level profits. Some may talk about a bubble, but then they have other experts on there saying how it's really not a bubble. But I'm going I'm to go with JP on that because he's issuing out a warning, basically. Okay, back to JP. We don't think we have the ability to identify asset bubbles perfectly. So what we focus on is having a strong financial system that's resilient to significant shocks, including if values were to go down. So did you hear what player is saying? What he's saying to you, that's not my problem. If the stock market is in a bubble, that has nothing to do with me. All I can do 
is look at the financial health of the quote, quote, overall system to see if it could sustain the loss when it crashed. So average person, can you sustain a loss? If you wake up overnight and what you've invested in the stock market is gone, can you sustain that loss? Those of you that are in the 401ks, you got big money up there. Can you sustain that loss? Because that's what he's telling you. I'm telling you that's what JP is telling you. All right. The 60 Minutes man, Scott. The securities industry has reported that $814 billion has been borrowed by people in the stock market. Borrowed against their portfolios. That's a 49 increase over last year. So this is the 60 Minutes man. I'm telling you all, this is a hell of an interview. This is a warning, baby. They are laying it all out for you. Can't nobody come back and say, I don't know. It ain't going to be their fault that you didn't look at the 60 Minutes interview. It ain't going to be their fault that you didn't know how to sit and slowly read this shit and break it in. Break it down. None of that ain't they fault. So in other words, you can't say you didn't know. So Scott P goes on to say, and the last time it grew this much was, and what? 2007, before the Great Recession. I told y'all Friday that what we are in now is that 2008 crash. I told y'all that. Now back to Scott P. And the time it grew that much before was 1999, before the dot-com explosion. That's right. I also told y'all on Friday on part one of this that these things happen in cycles. I told you that the decline of a crash starts at a seven-year cycle since the last crash. And it goes in up until a 10-year mark. All right. Okay. At what point does the Federal Reserve start to rein in this speculative bidding up of stock prices based on borrowed money? Okay, because remember, this is really all about cheap money that the banks are loaning to the public and cheap money because it don't cost the Fed nothing to print. Nothing. It, it don't even cost him anything to print that money. Not him. But that system, okay? And if y'all really want to know the true, 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 who really prints that money, it ultimately goes back to those old empires which rose up to the Vatican, okay? All right, but that's neither here nor there. We're going to stick to this. So JP says, that sounds like margin debt. I don't know the statistics. I really can't react to that statistics. I would say now... He know that statistic. JP know that statistic. But in JP's defense, that ain't his job to sit up here and say, well, damn it, all you have to do is pull up the trends from uh, depressions and recessions and you'll see it on a seven to 10 year cycle. So yeah, I wouldn't be sitting up explaining that any e either. 
<coughs> but he says, um, I would say the main thing that we do is to make sure that the financial institutions that we regulate and supervise understand the risks that they're running, managing them well, have lots of capital, lots of liquidity, and highly evolved risk management systems so that they do understand the risks they're running and have plans to deal with them. Okay? So he just told you his concern is what the banks do. His he his concern is not how much money that um Congress and them is gonna borrow, what you can afford, none of that. Because he's just the bookie at the end of the day. He's the main bookie. I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna say that. He's one of the bosses of the five families. Let's put it that way. And he still ain't really the big boss. So he's one of the boss. And he tells, um, he's one of the heads of the five families. And he tells his bosses, his bosses are the Federal Reserve Banks. Now, in the U.S., there are 12 of them. So he got 12 bosses. Those 12 bosses, they have, um, they loan money to the other subsidiary uh, banks, and they're not really subsidiaries on paper, but in truth, the real way that things are ran, they are subsidiaries. So those other banks, so that would be your local banks, those are the uh, captains and lieutenants per se. And the captains and lieutenants, they are the true bookies. They're the true bookies in this situation. They're loaning out the money to you, the degenerate gambler, the degenerate gambler who can't seem to manage their money properly, don't know how to balance debt and credit. You go to the bookie to get the loan and the bookie give you points, right? And you don't know what those points are going to be. See, the bookie is taking his orders from the captain on how many points he going to charge per week. All right? And the captain is getting it uh, from the boss. And the boss is getting it from the head of the family. You see how that works? Okay. So, uh, this is still, um, Scott P going in. I'm, I'm sorry. This is still, uh, one of the head of the five family JP. <laughs> and that way, when there are shocks, for example, if there were too a big, too big of a market correction, you will see financial institutions that are strong enough to stand up to that. Not just private financial institutions, but also markets and things like that payment, utilities, and things like that. That's really what we do. So the 60 Minutes man say, and you believe the system, because of the oversight of the Fed, has the wherewithal to stand a significant shock to the market. Head of the five, one of the five families, JP said, well, I think we saw that actually. Yes, I do believe that. 
We never say that the mission is accomplished, but I would say that if you look at how the banking system and the financial system, most parts of the financial system made it through quite a stress test last year when we lost, you know, 25% of the GDP and 30 million jobs in the space of a couple of months. Okay, so in other words, when the pandemic stuff happened, they're telling you those were the numbers that hit the economy. I'm telling you that that's the kickoff to the total switching of the economy, which would a new one will be a digital and the job market will be robotics. Okay. So he's pretty much telling y'all that they're, they were testing, they were testing, they were testing the crash back when the pandemic hit. And it's still uh JP. Now, some parts of the financial system had to be bailed out again. These were these were really, though, non-bank places like money market funds and things like that where we had to step in again and provide liquidity. But ultimately, the work we did in the Dodd-Frank and in the um, Basel to strengthen the banking system over the last decade, I think it showed up pretty well and what was a pretty good stress test. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So the 60 Minutes man said, no zero interest rates are with us for how long? Head of that uh, one of the five families, JP. Well, we've said that we looked at raising interest rates when the labor market recovery is just about complete, when inflation <laughs> is at 2% and on track to run moderately above 2% for some time. That's what we said. I don't have a particular calendar date for that, but we would consider raising rates at that time. How many times do the head of the family got to say that he going to raise them rates? He, he has been consistent through this article. I don't care how Scott try to come back and answer this question in a different way. He is consistent with the answer. And the bottom line, the answer is interest rates will rise at a minimum, initially 2%. So 60 Minutes man saying, so all the way through the end of the year, you wouldn't see rates increasing. Ooh, child, this is really good now. JP says, I think it's highly unlikely we would raise interest rates anything like this year. No. All right. So homeowners, you got them adjustable rates. I hope you do have the end of this year, but don't get frivolous. You better be saving your coins and get in a position to be able to pay 10% on top. I'm sorry, 2%. On top of, at a minimum, 2% on top of what you're already paying. And if you can't pay that, if you just lost your job, y'all are barely making that mortgage payment, sell it. Sell it and sell it now where you can get high price for it, get you in a cheap apartment and sit it out. Now, remember what I told you, those of you that got them adjustable rates, He's giving you until the end of this year, maybe. You're going to be paying 2% more. Okay, so um, so 60 Minutes said, man said, so 2022, head of one of the five families, JP said, you know, I don't want to put a date on it. 
It really comes down to outcome-based guidance is what we call it. And we will not depend on the calendar. It will depend on the progress of the economy towards the goals that we've set, which are 2% inflation and maximum employment. When we get to that place and inflation is suspected to run moderately above 2% for some time, then we'll look at raising interest rates. And that day will come. He's consistent. He's consistent. I'm going to go with, I'm maybe going to give y'all to the end of December. But if it's a shutdown, y'all, another shutdown, get ready. Okay, here go to 60 Minutes, man. Is there anything in the economy that's flashing red? Okay, JP says flashing red. I really don't think so. No, I think there are always risks. I mentioned the risk of the spread of the pandemic. We're seeing more pandemic cases again. Mm-hmm. Many parts of the country, as you know, are reopening with enthusiasm, and time is going to tell whether that was premature. Mm-hmm. But we do see cases moving up again. Not at high level, but you wouldn't want to see them moving back up. You want to see them flat or continuing to decline. They're at much lower levels than they were in the winter, The vaccination is helping, but that's, I think, the main risk we see to a speedy recovery. The 60 Minutes Man, how have your first few months with President Biden been different than your years with Donald Trump? JP, you know I'm reluctant to comment even indirectly on elected politicians. That's a practice I kept to, and I've never regretted it. So just peep game, family. You're never going to hear a Federal Reserve while they're in a Federal Reserve chairman while they're in office talk about what they feel the president is doing. You know why? Number one, if they do that, it will wildly swing the markets. And then number two, because they don't answer to the president. They don't answer to Congress. Remember, he's the bookie to Congress. So him as a boss of head of the one of the five families, it's the other way around. They coming to him for the money. He's their bookie. So he doesn't have to speak on what he feel they doing. Matter of fact, he don't care what they doing. The only reason he would care what they were doing is when his bosses tell him to care what they're doing and probably won't even even get to that um, situation because his bosses, so meaning those older empires that ultimately roll up to the Vatican, they going to handle that. All right, so the 60 Minutes man said, is your job easier now under the current um, administration. So JP said, my job is the same, really. I'm serving the American people. No, you're not, but okay. Trying to achieve the goals that we have with the tools that we have. We're seeking to achieve maximum employment and price stability and look out for the stability of the financial system. We also do that without regard to politics or external political forces. That I'm agreeing with you on 1,000% about y'all don't get into politics. You don't have to. I already said why you don't have to get into politics. 
And let's just be corrected. What I do not agree with you on, and it's okay, it's no shade towards you. You're only doing your job. You're not here to serve the American people. You're here to serve your bosses, which are the empire. And your job is to make that particular investment, that reserve bank, that loan monies to the United States, you make that money that you get to print out of thin air that's backed with absolutely nothing. You have to make that bring in profit. That's who, that's who your bosses are. You're beholden to your bosses, those empires, not the American people. And that's not your fault personally. That's not your fault. That's the American people's fault for allowing that to go on. No fault of your own. Okay? So, this is still JP. I'm fortunate to work with terrific people here at the Fed who are highly motivated and highly capable and just dedicated to the service we're lucky to give to the public. And that's what we're focused on. Okay? So, uh, Scott, 60 Minutes Scott goes, you are more than three years into a four-year term. Would you like to keep doing this? JP says, my focus is every day on, you know, doing the best I the best job I can for as long as I have this job, and that's what I want to do. I want to do the very best I can to serve the public that we all serve. And I really focus exclusively on um, that. So 60 Minutes Scott said, so you didn't say no. So JP said, I said that I focus exclusively on doing the best job I can for the public. Child. JP, you, you finna um lead this job. You finna um retire and they finna put somebody else in there. That's what it sounds like to me. But, you know, you did kind of leave it open. I understand, player, you know, and no judgment on my part. I'm just trying to be slick and possibly read what you're saying. So the 60 Minutes Scott said, what would you like the American people to know about the Federal Reserve at this point in our economy? Ooh, baby, JP says, the head of one of the five families, I think we've been through an extraordinary difficult time. 2020 was a very difficult year for so many different reasons. And now we find ourselves really at an inflection point where the economy we think is going to start to recover much more quickly. And it's a real tribute to the innovation and the determination of the American people to get through this so well. Congress did a great job as well. I would leave you with an optimistic note, if I may. And that is, we've been through really difficult times as a country so many times. And in every case, without exception, we come out stronger and on the other side. I think we will come out of this. I'm highly confident we'll come through this with a better and more inclusive economy. Uh-huh. I understand, JP, no shade to you, brother, but I got to break it down. Yeah, the more inclusive economy will be calling in all cash, and this will be a digital economy. The inclusive economy will be because there's going to be millions of job losses as they roll out, 
uh, robotics, machine learning, and AI that they're going to usher in a universal basic income. All right. So that 20% unemployment rate that they were talking about with the lower middle class is going to get higher. So that UBI is going to include them to just keep them at a minimum of where they're currently at. That's really all he's saying. That's what he's saying behind the scenes without saying it. Okay, so the 60 Minutes man said, you mentioned the money market funds a few minutes ago. Many people invest in the money market funds. They froze up during the pandemic. They froze up in 2008 during the Great Recession. Is there something fundamentally broken about the market? Now, baby, this 60-minute man is on it. I don't care. He comes back every possible little thing that correlates with the 2008 crash he is bringing up in this interview. And he's bringing it up by design. And don't think that JP did not know these questions were coming. Again, this is the warning. This is the disclosure about the new economy, the crashing, the collapsing of one, going to a new economy. So here come the head of the five family, one of the five families, JP. There's a structural issue. And we know this. And it really is time to address it decisively. And that time is sometimes there arises a situation where people want to take their money out and it's difficult for money market funds to turn their assets into cash quickly enough. Are you kidding me? Wait a minute. Run that back to me again. You are admitting that if you have a money market account, that you walk in the bank and say, close this so-and-so right now. And the bank tell you, uh, ooh, <clears throat> I can't give it to you right now. Can you come back in a few days? Can you come? Out? Are you kidding me? That's huge. Let me continue to read what JP says. And so what's here to happen twice, baby, listen carefully. This is JP. And so what's had to happen twice is the Fed came in and became a source of liquidity for money market funds. So meaning the banks couldn't scrape that money together. They had to go to the captain or the boss, sorry, the boss, one of the Fed Reserve Banks, and get more money to pay them people back. So after, this is JP again, so after the global financial crisis, when it happened the first time, we did some reforms. Those reforms worked a little, but they didn't really do the job because once again, this time we had to step in and provide liquidity on behalf of the government to bail out these private businesses. This is J.P. Steele. And you know, when something happens twice, it's really, it's time to go ahead and fix it. Uh, You think? Every private business ought to have the ability to deal with a range of plausible things that might happen to it. And that's true of money market funds 
as it is for other businesses. So now explain to me how the lower class is supposed to be able to get jobs back. Because right now, what we're talking about, aren't these middle class jobs? When you're dealing with money market funds, aren't we talking middle class, upper middle class? Here goes the um, 60 Minutes, man. How do you fix it? Here go JP. I think there may there's many ideas that are out there and they are all under discussion, by the way, internationally as well. Essentially, what it boils down to is that the money market funds are going to need to be resilient enough so if they have a liquidity shock like this, they can handle it. Um, I don't know how y'all's logic is set up, but how my logic is set up don't seem like money market funds going to be getting too many bailouts. So if you in a money market fund, you need to pull that money. Now, I'm not trying to be no financial advisor by any means. The man may not mean that. I'm just saying. That's just how my logic is set up in my personal opinion. So here go the 60 Minutes man. Will corporate and personal tax increase uh, increases slow growth? So JP said, that is a good question for the fiscal authorities. As you know, y'all peeping this, uh, this um, godfather pimp game. As you know, we are a non-political, non-partisan agency. We serve all Americans. And we try to stay out of the business of elected politicians to the maximum extent possible. So throughout this interview... Did the boss of one of the five families say, none of that's his concern. My job is to loan money with points. That's what my job is. So really, if we really want to break this down, because JP, he really just putting out the game. This is just a warning. This is a warning and it's a disclosure. So should not the elected officials be the one answering these absolutely wonderful and stunning questions? So beautifully laid out. JP has said all through this interview, can't ask me about, are they borrowing too much money? You got to go ask them that question. Let's get back to it. So um, the 60 Minutes man say, Archegos was able to invest uh, only about 15% of its own money and all these stocks that it was buying. And that was made possible by the banks through something called total return swaps. It's time for the feds to regulate that derivative. Ah! Y'all remember on Friday, on part one, I specifically talked about the derivatives that crashed the 2008 market, housing market, when folks were betting on the housing market and then AIG was taking those bets. So meaning they were giving out mortgages really, really cheap and to everybody, they dog homeless people and all of that. And the banks was bundling that up. The bosses... And, um, I'm sorry, um, 
not not the uh, bosses, the um, lieutenants in them was getting the had the authority from their boss, one of the Federal Reserves, one of the twelve banks. To go on and start loaning all out this money. I don't care their financial situation. Go on and give it to them. Okay? And what did they do? They told them you bundle all of them loans up and you sell them to the stock market. And then AIG Insurance Company, people started saying, AIG, um, we want to place bets that the housing market is going to crash. And so supposedly and allegedly AIG didn't see the risk that there was a housing bubble. And they said, yeah, okay. Yeah, go on and give me some change on that. All right, so how many points you going to run if it's up or down? Uh, let's say 20% because supposedly and allegedly AIG did not know it was going to be a housing collapse. Okay. All right, so if the housing collapse don't happen, I just get to keep your funds. Hmm, it collapsed. That's what the derivatives was called back in the 2008 scheme. That was the housing derivative scheme. So now you mean to tell me this is a fresh new scheme? Another der derivatives, and, it, and they were called default credit swaps. That's what they were called in 2008. Default credit swaps. So now you're trying to tell me that this one is called total return swaps and it's a derivative. And so the 60 Minutes man is saying, um, y'all going to regulate that? So JP says, so those derivatives are already regulated in effect. It's the kind of thing where we would expect those banks to know what they're doing. It's fairly common instrument. And we would expect banks to understand the risk that they're running. Ooh. So you saying, you trying to say that you're going to put the blame on your lieutenants. Okay. <clears throat> so this is still uh, JP. I think what, what really happened is that they did understand the risk at, that they were running. What they didn't understand what, was that this one investment was doing the same thing with five or six prime brokers around New York. And that when it came time to liquidate positions, it was six firms or so trying to liquidate positions. Okay, so that's the same with the AIG thing. Everybody ran to get their ends from the AIG, and it was so many that AIG couldn't cover the spread. So there wasn't enough liquidity. So it was a risk management breakdown and one that we're looking very carefully at to try to make sense it doesn't happen again. Uh, no, that's just a ruse to say why the Fed system has to totally be rehauled and why it has to be digital. That's just going to be one of the reasons. Here go the 60 Minutes Man, one that you do not expect to see repeated. JP, I would say that we're determined to understand what happened and make sure that whatever happened doesn't happen again. All right. So the 60 Minutes man says, just a couple more here, Mr. Chairman. When you say the Fed is going to continue to support the economy, what do you mean? That's an excellent question. So JP says, 
Well, what we can do with our tools is we can provide accommodative financial conditions, and that just means low interest rate and broader financial conditions that are supportive of economic growth. So companies can borrow, households can borrow, credit is available. So that's printing more money. He's printing more money at lower points per se. And people can buy things and houses can be bought, that sort of thing. All of the tools that we have enable economic growth by making financial conditions supportive of growth. And that's really what we can do. Okay, yeah, that's what they can do until they change the spread on them points, i.e. raise the interest rates. Here go to 60 minutes, man. Getting back to your inflation target, why 2%? So notice when JP mentions, we just going to keep printing money. This follow-up question is very important. It's very strategic by 60 Minutes because he's basically saying, well, if you're going to keep printing money, that's going to mean in inflation. So you trying to tell me you're going to keep the inflation at 2% because you are going to raise them. You already said you're going to raise rates, but why this 2%? Why is the magic number, JP? 2% is what central banks, okay, they're the bosses, okay, of um, that particular, they're, they're the Fed Reserve Bank, because remember, there's 12 of them, okay? So uh, 2% is what the central banks around the world came to, you know, over the last really 40 years. It is the standard that all banks target. And you may really be asking, why not zero? And the reason is that interest rates, every interest rates include an estimate of future inflation. Did you catch that? Every interest rates includes an estimate of future inflation. So do you understand why the dollar has no value? Because when that dollar is being loaned out, you have to build in inflation. So if I'm loaning you a dollar and it's a 2% interest rate, that's what a dollar and two that you owe me. So that dollar is not worth 100. It's 98 cents. So I'm back to JP. So if you're lending money, you're going to get paid for future inflation. You're also going to have a real return. And if inflation were to be zero rather than two, then the interest rates would be 2% lower by definition. And that, and what that would mean is that the central banks, including the Fed, would have much uh, less room to cut rates and to support the economy when the economy turns down. Okay, so that's just the answer that he gave you is pretty much, he. I told you, forked tongue. So he already told you that, Every dollar that's lent out, they already built in the inflation, hence the inflation rate. Why they don't keep them at zero, and this is the bullshit answer, 
And it's really not a bullshit answer. He's telling the truth. But the reality of it is, because it's a rigged system, this is why they've been able to keep this game going for so long and why the U.S. is in so much debt that it can never pay back as a corporation. Because what they're saying is, if we keep rates at zero, that means that nobody would be earning, so meaning the public, businesses, would not be earning any money on their investments, uh, their savings, and all of that. That's what he's really saying. Okay, um, so you see the catch-22 they have. So he furthermore says, and what that would mean is that the central banks, including the Fed, will have much less room to cut rates and to support the economy when the economy turns down. And... So we've seen that as inflation and rates have moved down, we've seen central banks have less ability to support the economy. Okay, but y'all said that was one of your tools. But okay, that means worse economic outcomes. It means lower growth. And we see a number of central banks around the world that really have a hard time getting inflation up to 2% and have much less ability to to support their economies. We don't want that to happen here. And that's why we want inflation that's really at 2%. So here go to 60 Minutes, man. To follow up on our conversation about the digital dollars, I'm telling you, y'all, baby, this is a hell of an interview. It is an extremely important interview. I've been been at this almost two hours, y'all. I didn't expect to to have this follow-up. Be this off, shoot, two hours and 36 minutes. I didn't expect it to be this long. I apologize. I did not realize that this was going to be so in debt, um, deep. I shouldn't, in debt probably wasn't the right word to use. So here go to 60 Minutes, man. To follow up on our current conversation about digital dollar, are you considering a digital dollar in order to compete with the cryptocurrencies that are out there already like Bitcoin. Here go JP. That's not the principal reason, I wouldn't say. It is a fact that there are private sector currency, stable coins, and cryptocurrencies as well. Those are not at all a level or a scale that is concerning at this point. Really, the fundamental question for us is if we add this new digital currency to trusted money that we're counted on to provide to the public, will that help the public? Will the public be better off? And will there be any negatives too? Will that have perhaps unexpected effects in other parts of the financial system that we need to consider and weigh in the costs and the benefits of this? We're the world's reserve currency. The dollar is so important. And remember, I told you it's important because right now all world debt is settled in dollars or all payments, if you want to put it that way. We need to get this right. We do not need to be the first ones to do this and we want to get it right. And that's what we're going to do, okay? Because China's going to be the first one to do it, y'all. China's the testing ground for digital currency. Hence, is why they mentioned China in this article. 
Here go to 60 Minutes, man. At this moment in time, what's the best guarantee that you can make to the American people? This JP. Well, I'm in a position to guarantee that the Fed will do everything we can to support the economy for as long as it takes to complete the recovery. So in other words, we're going to keep loaning out money. That's basically what he's saying. We're just going to keep loaning out money because we know that, uh, that your government's going to keep coming to us. All right, so this is the 60 Minutes uh, man, Scott. I look back at our last interview almost a year ago, and what struck me was how little was known about what was going to happen with the pandemic or the economy. So JP goes, you know, the level of uncertainty was really frightening. We did not know how the economy would perform. We did not know the path of the disease. We had no idea when, how long it would take to do a, a vaccine. So I think if you look back a year ago to when we last spoke, the economy actually per, performed better than we had feared, subsequ- uh, substantially better. And part of that is what Congress did with the CARES Act, what we did, and what the people in the private sector did. And then at the end of the year, we got vaccines and they're now in the wide distribution. So really the economy has done better than expected. The other side of that though, is if you told me at this time last year that 550,000 plus people and counting would, would have died of the pandemic, I would have been shocked. I think the numbers we were hearing from experts and kicking around at that time were substantially lower. And it's a lot of tragedy. It really is. And we don't want to forget that. So the 60 Minutes man said, more than half a million Americans dead. JP, yes, 60 Minutes man. More, More than died in World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, all added together. And yet people have been clamoring to open the economy. What does that tell you about the American tolerance for death? (sighs) This is what JP said. I will say people are really eager to get back to their regular lives. Many of the people who did die were vulnerable, either older or with pre-existing conditions and things like that. People are very eager to get back to the way life was before. And I would just say, if we can just be a little more patient, we can avoid another spike. Okay? This is the third time he's talking about another spike. Pay attention. We can avoid unnecessary deaths and when, and, and the economy will recover more quickly as well. So it's a win-win-win thing. And I hope that we can do that. Here go to 60 Minutes, man. In those darker days a year ago, your economists at the Fed, your advisors here at the Fed came in and painted what scenario for you? Uh, JP goes, so again, it was tremendous uncertainty that, you know, there was always the possibility that it would be better than we thought. But there was a possibility that the economy would really struggle. Remember that all around the world, people voluntarily shut down major economies in significant part at the same time, simultaneously. 
No one's ever done that before. So what would happen? How would you get the living thing that is the economy going again? Would it just stand up and start running again? We didn't know. We really didn't know. And there was a real possibility if Congress hadn't acted as vigorously as they did, there was a real possibility that the economy would struggle and that these job losses that we had, you know, 30 million people out of work, that they would become longer term, that people would lose their connection to the labor force, that there would be a long lasting damage to our economy and the lives of our people. I'm happy to say that that really hasn't happened anything like to the extent we were afraid of. Okay, so uh, 60 Minutes Man said, do you think at the time, at that time, that you could be looking at a Great Depression scenario? JP, you know, that was something we talked about. It was, we didn't think that was a likely outcome. I never thought that was a likely outcome, but it was around the edges of our conversation. And, you know, we were very eager to do everything we could to avoid that, of course. Huh. Did JP just admit that they really, they pretty much knew that that was a Great Depression scenario? Hmm. So here goes Scott from 60 Minutes. Are you surprised the economy snapped back the way it has? JP, yes, the performance of the economy, even before we had a vaccine, was surprising to, I want to say, almost all economic forecasters, beginning with the job report from May of last year, and then right through, really, right through the summer, you saw very high levels of people going back to work and returning to their work lives. And then in the winter, what you saw was the pandemic spike as people went back indoors. And now with uh, vaccination, you're seeing the resumption of what appeared to be a very strong expansion. Okay, so the 60 Minutes man thanked him again. Um, so he asked, is this the recovery you were respecting? Um, okay, he already said that. Okay, I don't know why they repeated that again in this interval. So y'all, again, <clears throat> this was just straight from the 60 Minutes um, website, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Powell, he put this out Sunday. So that interview hit publicly Sunday. So this is just a follow-up to part one that we did Friday um, on the gateway of a new economy. This is part two. All right. Uh, so this is WTUZ Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Rhonda. So I know I kept y'all far longer than what I was supposed to keep you all. Um, I didn't expect for them to have so much meat, so much hard-hitting information in that interview. So I wish everyone well. Enjoy the rest of your day. Peace and love, family.